0: Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan and today on The Detail, a potential sea change in the very fabric of publicly funded sport in Aotearoa. A newly formed athletes union could shake up how sports people are employed. The Athletes Cooperative, which has been spearheaded by decorated Olympic rower Mahi Drysdale, wants athletes treated as employees rather than contractors. Some sports have big audiences, big sponsors and lots of money rugby and cricket and football and so on on the other hand you have athletes who play less popular spectator sports cyclists for example sprinters and pole vaulters rowers and these sports tend to be focused on the individual and the athletes tend to be funded through taxes grants from High Performance Sport, NZ, which gives out millions of dollars to hundreds of athletes every year. The thing is, they don't get that much money. The base training grant is just 25000 bucks a year, and these are, remember, the people who hope to one day win us medals at the Olympics. So today on the podcast, Stuff's national correspondent, Dana Johansson, sits down with me to discuss a landmark case being taken to the Employment Relations Authority which could fundamentally change the nature of high-performance sport in Aotearoa
1: it really has been brewing since about 2018 which which I call kind of New Zealand sports year of reckoning when we had a series of really high profile reviews into environments like Cycling New Zealand for the first time around
0: cycling new zealand says it accepts the findings of a damning review of its high performance track program and has apologized for its failures Independent reviewer Michael Heron QC has found a culture of bullying, poor behaviour, a
1: lack of accountability. The Black Sticks women's environment. Hockey New Zealand will take a look at their own structures after a former player claimed she was unhappy with the environment within the Black Sticks set and it forced
0: her to end her international career.
1: The football ferns environment. It's no surprise today that Andreas Haraf decided to leave. He was left with no option after members of the football ferns wrote a letter to New Zealand football complaining about his dictatorial approach to coaching. Um, And even behind the scenes like triathlon and rowing and and canoe racing were dealing with their own athlete welfare objectives. And then alongside that, Stephen Cottrell, uh, quite a prominent sports lawyer, sort of did this broader look at the high performance system and, and it's called the Elite Athlete rights and welfare review and that kind of raised I guess all the kind of summed up all the issues that were occurring across the across the board and as he sort of said you know a lot of the issues are occurring because of a lack of a genuine focus on athlete rights and welfare and he also raised that I think he concluded that one of the key ongoing issues to address is the inequality and bargaining power between NSOs on one hand and elite athletes on other.
0: A number of the conclusions to some of these reviews are going to come out with is that boards and management were not close enough to the environments and they just didn't know what was going on
1: like high performance sport genuinely showed intent to, to address these issues and behind the scenes they were doing working groups and um, coming up with a, a broader system strategy that that would Take these collective findings and try to improve athlete welfare and put it at the heart of what they can do. So they were genuinely trying to address these concerns. And it took until sort of March 2021 when they unveiled their their kind of big roadmap um, with their system strategy, and that sort of overhauled the funding mm-hmm. and made broad changes to that and um, ensured that they were going to be investing in environments that placed athlete welfare at the heart of what they do. And then Six months later, we had that tragic event with Olivia Podmore passing away. Olivia Podmore was one of our most promising Olympic athletes, but her dream was shattered by bullying and intimidation at Cycling New Zealand. Those allegations were among the findings of a 2018 report into the organisation's culture, so four years ago. Which forced, obviously, another deep introspection of the high-performance system.
0: system. yeah. The key theme of this review was that cycling's high-performance system prioritises
1: medals over well-being. It was high-performance sport that designed the terms of reference for that, right? Yeah. And so it's interesting that they did that because they obviously thought they'd already found the solution to the the great philosophical problem that faced high-performance sport and that was like sort of medals before welfare. So while they're trying to implement all these new changes reviewers running alongside it already raising issues with these changes that, and finding gaps with the changes they're trying to implement.
0: Yeah, among those changes, sort of setting up a, like an Athletes Voice kind of um, organisation, but one that would be funded by High Performance Sport NZ, so it, it, it sort of, it's nominally arm's length away, but it does still rely on HPS NZ for funding and... They're building the airplane as they're flying in it, and then they've also got airplane experts critiquing the design of the airplane at exactly the same time. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so there were concerns from the outset that the model was going to be compromised. And I think when they put out a rec- when a request for a proposal was put out to two organisations. One was sort of the NZOC Athletes Commission and the, the other was the Athletes Federation. Uh-huh. The Athletes Federation, which are kind of a conglomerate of all the players' associations and have wield huge power in terms of athlete advocacy, they said, we don't think this is the right model. We don't want to be involved with it. Uh-huh. And then other athletes caught on to that and said, yeah, we're not sure if this is the right model either. So um, a group of rowers and cyclists were the... Found a kind of natural alignment there, and and have taken taken on forming their own union.
0: High performance sport NZ is remaining tight lipped about proceedings. A new athlete union is taking against it. Rowing great Mahi Drysdale is spearheading an employment case that could have major implications for the sports system. Let's talk about that element of things because the union that has now been formed, the Athletes Cooperative, this concerns cyclists and and rowers and even in the wider sort of story we're not talking here are we about like rugby players or cricket players or football players or netballers, we're talking about athletes who receive high performance sport NZ funding is that correct?
1: That's right, because I guess the real gap in the system is while some of those bigger sports like uh, rugby and, and cricket and netball and even hockey, they have their own players associations which are able to collectively bargain on behalf of these athletes and ensure that their rights and obligations are being met. There's this massive gap where you've got all these high performance funded athletes that you know, are expected to be ambassadors for our country and are dealing with huge pressures of of high performance sport, they don't have a voice in the system. Mm. So that is really where the gap exists, and what and what these um, this group is trying to address.
0: And it's the reason for that that the sports in New Zealand that do have players' associations. We're talking rugby, netball, football, cricket. These are professional sports, they are sports, they have broadcasting deals that deal with a lot of money, there are commercial imperatives, they get paid lots of money and so on and so forth, but athletes who are funded by High Performance Sport New Zealand tend to participate in sports that don't have the same spectator appeal, that don't make the same amount of money and don't really have the same level of financial Commercial financial viability.
1: Yeah, I think probably the biggest sleight of hand the government pulled off in creating the system is they essentially have professionalised sports that have no professional appeal. Yeah. Okay. So the infrastructure around these sports is hugely professional. I mean, you've got um, high performance directors and analysts and performance psychologists, nutritionists, physios. This entire sort of cottage industry was created around these sports, and you know. A, Half of them are getting, well, you know, a lot of money, six-figure salaries for most part. And then you've got athletes, the whole reason this system exists and the whole reason these people's jobs exist, who are not well-funded. Mm-hmm. And they're signing these athlete contracts, which multiple reviews have, have said... Uh, unacceptable in terms of the power imbalance Um, they impose far more onerous terms and conditions and obligations on the athletes than they do the sports bodies themselves and so this is really about redressing that power imbalance.
0: Right I see and so and 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 because for let's take rugby for example because the rugby players have a union and a strong union that means that it can negotiate from a position of strength and get favorable terms for its players the argument of these athletes the high performance sport and said funded athletes is that they don't have a collective voice and therefore the terms that they are almost obliged to sign given that the funding for them pursuing their career comes from government they don't have as much heft in negotiations as their perspective
1: they don't have any heft in negotiations like if if a athlete contractors put in front of you and that's your only pathway to wearing the fern and representing your country you're not really in any position to question the terms and say oh should you have the right to use my image and and things like that so that's why they need a body that is truly independent and genuinely empowered to exert real authority and control, and be able to sort of find some clear middle ground. A lot of it's come down to the funding, or a lot of the stories have focused on the funding, and their athletes don't get, and for the most part, don't don't even meet minimum wage requirements. But a lot of it is to do with other terms and conditions, and having the same protections as employees might, because they felt like they feel like they're treated um, as almost disposable commodities in the system, and so just affording them a lot more rights and protections and coming up with an agreement that's agreed upon collectively rather than imposed on mm. the athletes.
0: When you say other things beyond just the funding side of things, what are you talking about there?
1: If you look at what the issues that have come up in these multiple reviews or some of the complaints that the athletes have raised, they talk about things like selections.
0: In the area of selections, I guess mm. I guess we're talking about things like Athletes not going to big events because they don't meet a likely medal or a likely top eight place criteria that's put in place? Are we talking about those sorts of things, sort of seemingly arbitrary reasons to send or not to send athletes to big events, um, uh, even if they're really good at what they do, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, or more about the way selections are communicated with athletes, um, coming up with sometimes... Athletes feel like the goalpost shifts a lot of the time. They don't know whether that what they're supposed to be meeting. One of the key obligations on NSOs that is in the athlete contracts that, as they exist now is providing in, individual performance plans. But mm. you speak to a lot of athletes. They don't have an individual performance plan. And just the ability to raise a personal grievance um, is, is probably the key one. Right. And just having someone to represent you and be your voice in the, in the room.
0: So the athlete's point of view is basically that the stuff that they do in the environment around the training regime and competitions and funding and so on and so forth, this is akin to a workplace, but there aren't the same minimum standards in place that an employee of a company would be entitled to under employment law.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Can you tell me, someone who receives HPSNZ funding, how do they get paid? How, how, does, it, how does it work financially? Do you know?
1: I understand that they have a funding agreement with both High Performance Sport New Zealand and the NSO. The NSO
0: um, being? The
1: National Sporting Organisation. Right. So, it, and this is going to be one of the, the key challenges, I think, for the legal team representing the athletes to overcome is that it can clearly be argued that the relationship between athletes and the sporting organisation is one akin to an employee-employer em, model taking that they're taking a step further and they're saying it, they're taking high performance sport new zealand to the era and so i think clearing that hurdle and arguing that they are effectively employees of high performance sport new zealand will be the the, the difficult barrier to clear um, obviously high-performance sports positioners they are not our employees. We provide them with a grant, mm. not wages. So it's going to be a fascinating test case, I think, and it's definitely one that's going to be watched around the world. You've seen already sort of these global athlete advocate groups have been sort of talking about it within their networks and, and watching very closely because it could, you know, have, have set a massive precedent not only for New Zealand but also overseas. Oh, look, I think there's always scope to look at these kinds of things. And I think with sports in particular... Um, we see the rugby players as employees. So New Zealand Rugby Union employs the rugby players uh, and they, they bargain collectively for their terms and conditions. So we do have a model of um, an employment relationship within sporting in New Zealand. Um, I think the fact that the cricketers are independent contractors tells you there, there is no consistency, though. So I think it's sort of a surprise that one of our major sports has an employment model, and the other one has an independent contractor model. But the fact that the rugby union has an employment model does indicate that there may well be scope for uh, governing bodies to to employ athletes and other um, other codes as well.
0: Right. So the grant model that you talk about—that's how NZ funded athletes put food on the table. Basically, they 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 apply for a grant um, from from high performance sport NZ, and then that money comes in, rather than it being like a salaried thing, an employer of a company or whatever. that they're, they're, they're essentially acting almost as sort of independent contractors.
1: Yeah, they don't directly apply for a grant. The NSO will apply on their behalf and say, for some of them, like your, your Olympic gold medalist, mm-hmm. so it's quite an easy case to make, yeah. and, and there's sort of um, minimum levels that they will get, I think... Um, Olympic gold medalists will get an additional $40,000 on top of the base training grant, which is $25,000. But for those kind of more fringe athletes or the, the kind of more development athletes, it's up to the NSO to identify those athletes, show how they're performing and, and how they expect them to progress, and that's how they um, get their funding, but within a certain pool, larger pool of money.
0: twenty five grand. That's the, that's the lowest funding, that's the starting point for...
1: That is the base training grant. They have a, a lower a sort of $12,500, um, I, I forget what it's called, but that's for a more, a more a development athlete yeah. level where they see sort of future podium potential, they can apply for those. And that was only recently introduced back in March 2021 under the new funding scheme which was to kind of ensure that a broader pool of athletes could get funding. And this was as part of them identifying, like this was their big response to yeah. the athlete welfare crisis, was like, we need to throw more money at athletes, but it's kind of diluted the, 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 the funding pool.
0: Wow. Okay. Looking at it from the athlete sort of perspective here, if your baseline training funding is, is twenty five grand, and you're a really serious athlete, you know, and you're training full-time, the athletes see that as basically saying we're being paid a minimum wage of twenty five thousand bucks a year. Twenty five grand is not much money. It's well below minimum wage if you're interpreting a working week as, as being forty hours. But if it's up to us to advocate by ourselves, that's unlikely to change on a wide level. We want to band all of our voices together. Is that essentially it? Like Yeah, like
1: there's there's We've heard stories of athletes that um, haven't been able to put fuel in their car one week because they've run out of money, or um, not being able to feed themselves properly. So I think a lot of a lot of it does hinge on just being able to have some level of fi- financial stability recognising, of course, that from one year to the next, if you're deemed not to be performing or meeting your performance objectives, then that funding is cut. Like, there's, yeah. there's no parachute clause. Um, so a, a lot of it does hinge on just providing a better, you know, more financial stability for these athletes and ensuring that they, um, they can have money to live and you know we're expecting these people to go out and represent our country to a high standard and if they're worrying about where their next meal is coming from that's not conducive to creating a strong performance environment.
0: The thing that this sort of reminds me of a little bit is like I mean, a lot of writers and artists get by on, for example, grants from Creative NZ. It, it, it would be similar in a... Well, I don't know. I don't know how glued up you are on employment law. It's very <laughs> impressive if you are. But like, would it sort of be like if if the various artists and and writers who who, who essentially rely on grants from Creative NZ to live we're to band together and say we want some minimum employment standards as as well, kind of similar to that in a way.
1: Yeah, and I suspect that might be an argument that high-performance sport New Zealand lean on in right. that if, yeah. if we're going to deem our elite athletes to be employees, where does that leave agencies like Creative New Zealand and ballet and symphony and all those yeah. types of grants? Are they then going to be in the same position? And what sort of precedent does it set for other um, people that are that are that rely on funds from government organisations. Yeah.
0: So this case has gone to the uh, employment ERA, the Employment Relations Authority, or the Employment Court.
1: The Employment Relations Authority, right. which I think is the first step. I wouldn't be surprised if it does wind its way to the Employment Court.
0: Yeah, there is some high-profile lawyers involved here. Do, do we know what the athletes cooperative has asked for from High Performance Sport NZ?
1: Well, at this point, they, they haven't been able to ask for anything because they haven't got to that point. They right. attempted to enter into collective bargaining. Um, High Performance Sports said, we we can't negotiate with you. We're not your employers. And so now that is being tested through the Employment Relations Authority. I think um, what they are seeking in, in general is, as we talked about, greater financial stability, but also they just they want to say and 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 how the the system is designed and and being able to to properly negotiate as if it was a genuine employment environment
0: Mm. meanwhile as you mentioned earlier high performance sport maintains that these athletes are not employees and so this this negotiation shouldn't actually happen in the first place
1: yeah so i think it's it's not like that then they're not open to talking to these athletes and understanding what they want. They're just saying we're not in a position to, under the legal terms, collectively bargain with you and, and come up with a with a, with a, a wider agreement that that will cover all your athletes.
0: I mean, what are you? You know, you you covered you've covered sport for a long time. <laughs> you're you're one of the very best in the business in this kind of area, particularly pertaining to you know high performance sport athletes and not just the big ticket rugby football cricket kind of stuff you 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 know a lot of these athletes what do you make of all of this
1: oh I just think it's fascinating I love a good courtroom drama um I I tend to agree with the athlete's point of view um I'm not sure legally where they stand but I certainly think that a lot of the issues that have Continue to come up in, in these reviews, these exhaustive reviews that go back to 2018, they could be solved if they had a um, truly independent representation, including legal representation, to be able to come up with an agreement that that works for them, to be able to have a say in their training hours and whether they can go home. It's like some athletes can't even go home for leave at the weekend. Um uh, as I say, I just think that a lot of it could be solved if they um, were considered employees. Mm-hmm. At the same time, high-performance sport clearly consider it to be, I think, unworkable, too expensive, and they argue, well, if we did move for this model, it would limit the number of athletes we could support, thereby impacting athlete welfare further. So you'd, you'd have a lot of athletes in the system just sort of slogging away and the dreams of reaching this level and... and not getting paid.
0: Yeah. I guess that is a factor to consider, isn't it, is that if we're talking minimum wage, I think you wrote in your piece it equates to about forty four grand a year there or thereabouts. And athletes subsisting currently off twenty five grand a year and whatever they can scrape together from part time jobs and so on and so forth. Like making up that twenty grand differential from high performance sport NZ's perspective would require either a significant boost in funding or cutting the number of athletes that it's able to support.
1: Mm, yeah or uh, i'm not sure if they're they're arguing for minimum wage itself but it might be sort of mandating hours so that that can allow them to work part-time because currently it doesn't um i think high performance sport will argue that it that they they can and there are they will lean on certain examples of where athletes have been able to work part-time but um if you know high performance sport is all consuming and so um
0: yeah i mean come on you <laughs> yeah. know it's high performance sport you got to tra- you you got to train for that
1: oh absolutely and i mean you talk to athletes and even those that might have the time like their entire day is structured around the next training yeah. so you know they might train in the morning um then do a gym session and then they might have you know a, f- a lunchtime and a few hours off in the afternoon but that whole time they're thinking you know I've got to make sure I'm fueled properly for the next training session and I, I don't want to you know I don't want to be too busy or stressing myself too out so stressing myself out too much so they're making sure they're relaxed and just watching Netflix or reading or chilling so that they are preparing well for their next training session and if you um I mean I'm sure it is Visit, like possible for them to work but whether they as I say conducive to a uh, high performance environment I, I don't think that's the case I think that the case that the athletes have is, is quite compelling in the sense that what the Employment Relations Authority are going to look at is the true nature of the relationship between athletes and NSOs and High Performance Sport New Zealand. As I say I think that the more challenging hurdle to clear will be making the case that High Performance Sport New Zealand are the employers mm. as opposed to the NSOs that their contracts are with. But I think it was clearly a strategic decision to take this case against High Performance Sport New Zealand as opposed to Cycling New Zealand or Rowing New Zealand. So obviously that's something that the legal masterminds are, are, are clear on and, and have have an argument for. So it would be interesting to see how it plays out.
0: That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for rnz You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Rangi Poek and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison, and thanks to Dana Johansson. Matewa.